Good evening. Fires are burning across large parts of London tonight. Major disturbances at Tottenham in North London. The trouble erupted after a protest at the fatal shooting of a man by police which turned violent. The looting of London was on an industrial scale. Houses and flats across the capital and other cities have been filled with an extraordinary haul of goods. In August 2011, England experienced the largest outbreak of rioting in a generation. The disorder began after the shooting of a young man, Mark Duggan, by police officers in Tottenham. A protest two days later morphed into larger disorder. Over the next three days, riots spread rapidly across London and then to other urban centres in England. In total, there was an estimated five deaths, 200 injuries, 3,000 arrests, and over £200 million worth of property damage. Welcome to LSEIQ. I'm James Rattie, and this is the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. In this episode of LSEIQ, I ask, what can we learn from the 2011 riots? Tim Newburn, Professor of Criminology and Social Policy at LSE, co-wrote a major report called Reading the Riots. He began by telling me where he was when the riots began. So the riots occurred in August 2011, and like a lot of people, including the Prime Minister, the Mayor of London, the Home Secretary, uh, and a number of others, I share almost nothing else with them, I was on holiday. The news came through, and almost immediately my phone started to go with journalists wanting to talk, wanting quotes. Um, I was obviously on in various kind of books as a criminologist who might know something about these kinds of things or at least might give a quote. So what was the initial trigger for the riots? I think there were two things that would ordinarily be alighted on as the sort of triggers or flashpoints or whatever the, the kind of metaphor one wants. The first was the shooting of Mark Duggan, a young man, young black man, shot by the Metropolitan Police on a Thursday. Um, He was travelling in a taxi. The taxi was stopped, confronted by Met police officers, and in the ensuing conflict, he was shot and killed. As is typical of those kinds of events, a huge number of claims and counterclaims were made about Mark Duggan and about what had happened. So in terms of his character, he was variously portrayed as, in inverted commas, a gangster, as involved in the drugs trade, as having been armed. It was suggested that not only did he have a gun, but he fired on the police, that one police officer had narrowly escaped injury and so forth. ...covered from the scene and that they understood the officer was shot before Mark Duggan was killed. However, Mr Duggan's family claimed that he was shot in the face by police after running from a minicab and leaving his gun behind. His family, friends, others in the in the local community, uh, I mean, A, obviously, were not only extraordinarily upset by the incident itself and the death, but also very much antagonised by the claims that were being made and very much disputed the idea that he was either armed or had shot on the police. Um, matters subsequently have shown that it seems neither of those things were the case. There was, a, there was a firearm found near the taxi, but no suggestion he'd had it in his hands, and absolutely none that had been shot or used. 
that's the backdrop. A, a sort of day and a half, two days later, family and others uh, stage a march from the Broadwater Farm Estate in Tottenham to the local police station, demanding answers as well as to stage a, a symbolic protest. What happened then, I think, is subject to dispute, but, but what seems indisputable, certainly from the point of view of the protesters themselves, is that it wasn't well handled. The vacuum of uncertainty prompted the demonstration. They wanted answers. Tottenham police didn't have them. Worse still, they waited in hope. They were told the police commissioner was on his way, but he never arrived. They felt disrespected that there wasn't an officer of sufficient seniority to deal with their requests, their complaints, their desire for information and so on. But in the handling of the crowd outside the police station, there was one specific incident where, where it appears a young woman was pushed to the ground by a police officer, just just in, you know, inflaming the tensions that were already raised. And it was from that, really, that I think the kind of initial violence grew, the initial destruction grew, and, and then slowly but surely escalated into the thing that we now know as the the initial writing in Harringay on the Saturday. The Guardian journalist Paul Lewis was at home in Stoke Newington, just south of Tottenham. On the Saturday, the riot started. The windows of my flat were open and I kept hearing police sirens going past, and which is not an abnormal thing on a Saturday night in Stoke Newington. But over time, it was just the intensity of it. And I was just kind of like, well, that's a lot of police cars. What's going on? And after about an hour, I remember looking at my phone and looking at Twitter and seeing that someone had tweeted a picture of a police car on fire. And, you know, I'm a journalist and, you know, to some degree you follow your nose with these things. And so I decided to go, go along. Um, I actually took my wife because it was a Saturday night and she, was, she and I were hanging out together. <laughs> so we were going to go to the pub and instead um, I, I took her to this riot. Date and, night. Uh, <laughs> pardon? Date night. Date night, yeah, it's a date night. You know, I remember first arriving and police had sort of cordoned off a section of the high street. And you could see that in the background there were missiles coming and there was some fires. And we walked around the edge and I just saw people, you know, dozens and dozens of people carrying um, hi-fis, TVs, electrical equipment. And my, my reaction, my assumption, was that people were clearing their houses because of the fire. And, and then it suddenly dawned on me that actually this was looting. And I'd never seen looting before. In fact, I don't know if there had ever been systematic looting of that kind in my lifetime in the UK. And it was at that point that I realised this was something that was quite, uh, quite a moment and unusual. And I stayed. Another memory I had from the night was um, talking to some kids on a side street and they, you know, they were showing me these, these Blackberry messages and, you know, there was all sorts of conspiracies flying around about the death of Mark Duggan. You know, that he'd been executed, uh, that he'd been shot through the back of the head. Um, some of the concerns that were going around at the time turned out to be warranted about the family not being given answers and the hesitancy on the part of police to talk to them. So I stayed through the, with the riots throughout the night in Tottenham. I got to bed. I think I went home um, and then I, I uh, got on my bike. My wife went to bed 
And I looked at my phone and the riots were spreading and they were sort of spreading uh, at that time west. And because a lot of the roads were blocked off, I thought the best way to get around would be on my bike. So I, I got my bicycle and I would basically just cycle around watching what was happening until about dawn uh, the next day. And then I got up, started reporting again, and then continued through the day, you know, barely any sleep. And then the writing began for the second night, you know, in, in Edmonton and Enfield and Brixton. And then the next night again, you know, basically the third night London was on fire. I think it was, I think I'm right in saying, around sort of 26 of London's 32 boroughs saw rioting and, and in some places extremely serious and uh, intense. And of course that night it also spread to Birmingham and Nottingham and Liverpool and Manchester and Salford. After three nights of unbridled lawlessness across London, the contagion is spreading not only to new areas of the capital, but now to regional cities too, though it's London where the worst of the violence, looting and vandalism is happening. Professor John Drury is lecturer of social psychology at the University of Sussex. Alongside Roger Ball, Fergus Neville, Stephen Riker and Clifford Scott, John has recently published a report entitled Rereading the 2011 English Riots. One of the report's objectives was to explain why the riots moved from Tottenham to other areas. What was apparent in the 2011 riots was the question of spread, right? How did one riot in Tottenham become dozens of riots across the country? How is that possible psychologically? That hadn't really been addressed before. Much of the initial speculation focused on the use of social media. Tim Newburn. The thing that did play a part was Blackberry Messenger. And that was used a lot. At the time, you know, all teenagers had Blackberries. There were these things, some of your listeners will remember, BBM messages, which were these encrypted messages that were being sent around Blackberry phones. Here's an interview with some rioters from the BBC's Newsnight. There was tons of messages coming through to everybody. Everybody's phone was buzzing off. Rioting's taken place in Tottenham, Lewisham, Peckham, Brixton. If I knew that my friends were coming back but there was police coming, I could have warned them straight away. So it was very useful little gadget that we had at the time. Wasn't there an impulse to shut it down? It wasn't that yeah, there was, there was talk about, I mean, this is, you know, in retrospect, so bizarre. You know, at that time, maybe there were elements in the public who want a sort of get tough response. And one of those was, well, you know, we'll, we'll consider trying to shut down Facebook in moments like these. The Reading the Rights report sought to test the effect of social media by examining the contents of riot-related tweets. We asked the company Twitter and they, and they agreed to give us um, you know, a data set of millions of riot-related tweets so we could analyse them. And actually what we found out was, was more often than not, the tweeting came after the, the rioting, so to speak, and people were using social media to disprove some of the, the false stories that were flying around. And that would go from everything from like, you know, there would be, there was a, I remember there's a picture of uh, the London Eye on fire, um, which was just, you know, superimposed, and it was ridiculous. I mean, the London Eye is made of steel, but this did the rounds. Uh, there was another rumour um, that McDonald's had been broken into and rioters were making their own food. That rumour actually made it into the Daily Mail. And there was the third, I remember, that London Zoo had been broken into and the animals had been released and people were photoshopping pictures of penguins around London streets. I mean, this was, I mean, on one level, this was a kind of classic media moral panic, I think. It's everything from the penny dreadful through the video nasties to everything. Every, every time there's, well, there's, a, there's a new technology, there's a new set of 
respectable fears, as they've been called. And this was, this was another example of that. But there's a tendency, I think, in political discourse to, to conflate or elide communication with cause. Had the Prime Minister tried or been able to switch off various platforms, then, yeah, it might have made communication more difficult and it would undoubtedly have affected the movement of people in various ways. Would it have stopped the riots? I don't think so. You get the same debate in social movement theory, actually, because they say, well, is it, is it that the new media, the new technology is transforming social movements? And people like Manuel Castells, they end up saying, well, no, it's a quantitative thing rather than a qualitative thing. What do you mean by quantitative rather than quantitative? Well, it speeds things up. It makes things faster. The knowledge spreads more quickly. The word spreads more quickly. There's not a difference in the type of things people do. It's a difference in how quickly they, they do them. So if social media was not the motivating factor, what was? People from across the political spectrum gave contrasting explanations. Here's hip-hop artist and writer Akala talking about the representation of Mark Duggan to Russia today. I mean, with Mark Duggan, there was the famous thing where the media ran a picture where he had a really sombre and upset look on his face. And we found out they'd cut out a heart that he was holding. He was stood at his daughter's grave. Think about the profoundness of that. This man was stood at the grave of his child, mourning, and the media cut out the, 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 the essentially it's like a flower box he was holding, and just showed the, the top face where he looks. He's obviously oh. got, he's got a scowl on his face. I mean, in a society like this, in a society built on private property, to be poor is a crime. To be poor and black is especially a crime. And so those narratives are birthed out of this uh, set of ideologies where to, to give a profound uh, counterbalance, where the Norwegian terrorist a few years ago who killed 78 people, or the pilot of that German wings flight who deliberately crashed 150 people into the side of a mountain because they're white are portrayed with more humanity in the media than teenage black victims of state murder. Right-wing opinions were markedly different. Here's then Prime Minister David Cameron, followed by then Home Secretary Theresa May. These are sickening scenes. Scenes of people looting, vandalising, thieving, robbing. This is criminality, pure and simple, and it has to be confronted and defeated. The disorder this summer wasn't about poverty or politics. It was about greed and criminality fueled by a culture of irresponsibility and entitlement. To those who say the judges were too tough, I say the guilty should get what they deserve. You know, whatever your pre-existing beliefs were, you would sort of imprint those upon the riots and come up with an explanation. So, you know, people on the right would say it was, you know, family breakdown or Cameron's term criminality pure and simple, or it was just simple lawlessness, or it was opportunism. And on the left, you know, it was, it was viewed more in terms of this is the early onset consequences of austerity. This is a form of protest it's to do with political injustice. It's to do with inequality. You know, it's to do, some people were arguing with the introduction of tuition fees or cuts to social services, particularly youth services. So it was around that time that, you know, I, I asked around and did some reading and it was evident that Tim Newburn at the LSE was, you know, pretty much the leading scholar in this domain. And, um, and I just phoned him up. About maybe a week or so afterwards, I got a telephone call from a journalist, Paul Lewis at The Guardian, saying that 
you know, they'd collected a huge amount of data on the riots. They were wondering what to do with it, but they were also thinking of doing some further research and might we, the LSE, be interested? And, and I was. So from about September to late November, we interviewed about 270 rioters, collected this huge quantity of data, analysed it, and then published it all in the newspaper in early December. So a really quick piece of social science, unusual, unique, really, I think. Are riots a particularly good kind of sociological kind of case study for understanding a society at large, its problems, its issues? I would argue that focusing on so these kinds of social phenomena are a really good window onto social life. From wherever it might be, from, from London to Hong Kong umbrella movement to Tahir Square to wherever else, what you're really looking at is at the broadest structural level, the, the political, social and economic formation and the, the way in which that links to outbreaks of urban violence. How order is not isn't maintained. Then UK Independence Party leader Nigel Farage dismissed the riots as being apolitical and purely opportunistic. I'm, I very well remember 30 years ago the Brixton riots. I lived very close to Brixton at the time. And if you remember, there was a cause, there was a reason. The black community were absolutely furious with the police over what were then called the Sus Laws. And it led to a change in the law. And I think many of us thought uh, that London and our, and our inner cities were safer places. What is happening here has got nothing to do with any political reason whatsoever. There are no demands coming from the rioters or protesters. This is just opportunistic crime taking place on an absolutely massive scale. Other riots seem to have or be conceived of by the media in more kind of political terms, whereas this was considered to be entirely apolitical and immoral. Well, that's true, but you, you know, they say that every single time. In 1985, they said, oh, well, the riots in 1981, they had a good cause, but look, these, these are gratuitous. Look at how many buildings they burnt. I tell you, they burnt far more buildings in the 1980s than they did in, in 2011, but every single time they say the same thing. Oh, they were, riots are much better in my day. You know, these days they're just, or they're after his trainers. So there's nostalgia for riots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, interesting. What reasoning did the then London Mayor, now Prime Minister, Boris Johnson give? There's a range of things, aren't there? There's, there's pure criminality. As I say, 86% have uh, previous convictions. There's a lust for excitement. There's greed. There's copycat stuff. There's Me Tooism. Uh, but what it gives us, I think, as I say, is an opportunity to deal with uh, some of the real problems we've got in London and indeed in, in other big cities uh, with gangs. Because it was, there's no doubt about it, it was the gangs who were leading off uh, the problem and who are leading off the assaults on the shops. John Drury's research questions some of these assertions, including Boris Johnson's claim regarding the percentage of rioters with previous criminal convictions. Well, the problem with the evidence used by the government in this case was that they relied upon initial arrest figures and they found that the profile of the initial uh, number of people who'd been arrested following the riots was very similar to those appearing in the courts anyway. So it's the same people, it's the same people we always see. But of course, what that neglected was the fact that to, because the police were under pressure, the police had gone out and targeted known people, right? So it's a kind of artifact of their initial strategy, which is understandable, they were under pressure, they had to go to where they thought they'd get arrests, and they'd arrested people with criminal records already. And so these were people that had been arrested. They weren't people that were 
were convicted, they were people that had been arrested, so it was a circular thing. And you know, that can be easily knocked back. I mean, the other claim they made, of course, was that it was all orchestrated by gangs, which they retreated from very soon after making it because, again, the evidence didn't support it. By the Monday, an increased show of force by the police was beginning to restore order. The government's hardline approach was also reflected in the punitive sentences of rioters, even for minor offences. The average sentence length was 17 months. Paul Lewis recalls a moment he experienced on the first night of looting. Stories after the riots about the length of sentences people were getting for what seemed like relatively trivial behaviour. And one of the stories that people talk about was someone who'd stolen a bottle of water from a shop. And, and I can't remember what, what, they, what they received him with. Maybe it was like a six month sentence or something. But it just seemed like such a trivial act. And I often think about that because I remember being you know, in the midst of the riot on the first night at sort of one or two o'clock in the morning, being desperately thirsty. And outside one of these shops, um, one of the shop owners had used sort of stacks of bottles of water almost as a sort of barricade for the glass outside of their window. And obviously these had been sort of knocked on the floor and, and spread across the pavement. And I remember being sort of quite tempted. <laughs> Because it just seemed like it was just sprawled across the floor and, you know, why, you know, why wouldn't you? I was really, really thirsty. And, and sometimes I just thought, you know, what if I picked up a bottle of water and, uh, and lo and behold, I'm sort of grabbed from behind by a police officer. The language used to describe writing has many connotations. Tim Newburn believes the word riot itself can be problematic. The word riot is a problematic one. Okay, because it, it means different things to, to different people. It's often used pejoratively, and it's used pejoratively in the sense that it encourages us to think about disorder simply in terms of the violence. So if there is a kind of political undercurrent, the, the term riot kind of evacuates the disorder of, of its political content. You know, this is a complex social phenomenon. John Drury has looked closely at the use of another word, contagion, and how it's repeatedly used to describe how riots spread. He argues contagion is a damaging and misleading term with a long history. If one looks at the history of this, you start to get a sense of what is wrong with it. The most important early use in a social science context was from the early crowd scientists in the late 19th century who sought not only to understand the, the crowds in, in late 19th century France who were seen by them as privileged gentlemen to be a threat to their society, a threat to civilization, but they also sought to combat this threat. And part of their way of doing that was to create this, this science which not only pathologized the crowd, but also in the case of Gustave Le Bon, for example, suggested various techniques to, to harness it and combat it and control it. Uh, and contagion was one of those words they used um, to convey that social influence in a crowd is mindless, um, that it's like a disease, that it's bad, that it has no boundaries. So any sentiment uh, or behaviour sweeps through a crowd, said Le Bon, just like a disease, and people are completely uncritical. Now this then became uh, uh, more popular in a few years later through the social sciences to describe all sorts of behaviour, not just crowd behaviour, but uh, consumer behaviour, emotions, all sorts of things. But it gives you the idea that it's bad, it's like an illness. And it does seem to be always linked with, with violence and with, and with crowds as well. You know, that is why we want to kind of develop an alternative, uh, because of that baggage. 
So what is that alternative? <laughs> well, first of all, um, neutrally, one can talk about spread. And then to explain that spread, you need a theory of influence. So statistically, you can show that, I mean, this is what a lot of people have done in this area. They've shown that the likelihood of a riot happening in one location is increased by the size of a riot in, in another location previously and the locality of it and, 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 and so on, the intensity of it, all these things are predictors. So then you've got spread, right, just simply descriptively. And then you can say, well, psychologically, for that to happen, then there must be some kind of influence, right? So that's another kind of neutral term. And then you need a theory of that influence. What, how does that work? And the concepts, and then you can either talk about contagion and say it's mindless, and then you predict, well, anyone who hears about the thing is going to be influenced. So, you know, then empirically, contagion is, is, is not useful, um, as well as ideologically. Um, so our uh, alternative is in terms of identity and empowerment. The role of identity is to specify who we listen to or who we um, take notice of. And then empowerment, because it's not enough just to hear about it, you need to get the sense that other people like you will act the same way. So what we found when we looked at South London was people expected their peer groups, their networks, their neighbours to join in, right? And it was that the influence, it was the influence of other people like me locally that actually got most people uh, in the interviews to get involved, because then they felt, I can do it, right? I can do it because I'm going to be supported because my, my friends and neighbours are going to be around me. I'm not going to be alone. The idea, then, that the riots were the actions of a barbaric, unthinking mass is incorrect. The Reading the Riots report sought to find evidence-based conclusions about what the riots were like and what their underlying causes were. Tim Newburn. The thing that comes shining through the interviews with a lot of the rioters, at least initially, is a real sense of carnival. What happens is... You know, a bit of violence breaks out, everyone's having a bit of a go, they're giving expression to, you know, all sorts of a sense of sort of anger and frustration and so on. But actually, partly, among all the other things they're doing, having a great time on the streets, you know, burning a car, throwing a few bricks, shouting some whatever, whoever, running around, kicking off. It's a lot of fun for a while. It doesn't last the fun, but, you know, it's that emotional kind of sense of freedom I, I think you know is not to be discounted people don't always think this about a riot and i've actually been in several riots since then both in the u.s and elsewhere you know i was in baltimore and the ferguson riots and they have a real festive atmosphere it can look incredibly threatening on the television but when you're in the midst of it you get the sense that for many of the people who are taking part it's almost joyous it's intoxicating there's this sort of febrile atmosphere that, that everything is suddenly let loose and there's a lot of cooperation that goes on on the ground. But it also has to be understood in the context of the lives of the kinds of folk who were drawn to it, which is actually what we're talking about, not entirely, but oftentimes, is in many cases young people, young people who are, who, whose lives are incredibly constrained who have very few opportunities, who are failing at school, whose prospects are poor, whose lives actually are kind of evacuated of enjoyment, fun, opportunity, the kinds of things that, you know, the, the wealthier might take for granted. And so that's another reason why this becomes a moment of excitement, a kind of turning of the tables on authorities and so forth. Here are some of the writers interviewed on ITV News. They are asked about what they looted and why? 
I've done this basically to provide for my family and like I got some stuff for my son, yeah. And I got some stuff for me, like some clothes, trainers. You're 16 years old, but you were getting stuff for your son. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I had to get some stuff for him. So and what then, did you get for him? I got him clothes. I got him nappies, powder, the whole Johnson set. You were all out together, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I got some TVs as well, plasmas, PS3, like laptops and stuff, innit? Like, it's the government's fault. I don't know. Conservatives. Yeah, whatever who it is, I don't know. It's not even a right, showing the police we can do what we want. Yeah, that's what it's all about, showing the police we can do what we want. You went to the stores that you'd applied for a job at? Yeah. I went across, like, I even went to Clapham, yeah, (laughs) to go where I handed out a CV. I was like, yeah, you didn't want to reply back to an email, or I come up here with my CV. I was like, yeah, this is payback, isn't it? Payback, boy. Which store did you go for in Clapham that you'd applied for a job at? Comment, comment. Comet, the electrical place. Has the research shown who the writers were and what motivated them? Building on the Reading the Riots data, John Drury and his team have been able to identify two key predictors of whether an area was more likely to riot. There are different ways of measuring deprivation, and in each case it predicts whether a riot occurred in a local area. The other thing we looked at is stop and search. We found that stop and search, and again, whichever way you measure it comes out the same way, that stop and search is a significant predictor of whether rioting occurs. The extremely poor relationships with the police obviously kind of then focused on the death of Mark Duggan, but more broadly around the long-standing problems that those communities or those people, some of them at least, had with the police. These are long-term historical problems. The antagonistic relationships are ones between the police and the community quite generally. Secondly, I think these are kind of quite targeted feelings as well. So that young people of all ethnicities um, find themselves in situations where they feel targeted, abused, mistreated by the police. Not least through things like the symbolic, most symbolic obvious thing is stop and search and the, the, the unreasonable, the rude, the disproportionate, aggressive use of stop and search as a tactic. But I think more generally, you know, the, the police for many are, are perceived in those communities as a sort of, as an invading force, as a, an army of occupation almost. And I mean, one of the claims that was made uh, by the Home Secretary, specifically at the time about the riots, was that what had gone on, what we'd seen, was somehow a reflection of the problem of of gangs in our urban environment. Now, actually, it turned out there was no evidence of that at all. And indeed, the the interviews that we did, and we did a lot of interviews, the main time the word gang was used was in relation to the police. They were described by people as the biggest gang. That's how they were perceived. And it's that sense, I think, the... Um, drives the kind of antagonism and hostility which which was partially at least given expression in the violence of the riots. And if you look at the footage, you could see, I mean, the, the looting is an example of this. I mean, a lot of the looting was in fact coordinated in the sense that people were cooperating with each other. And we know from the interviews that, you know, this is some of this was with strangers. So at some level, there's a kind of shared understanding that we're a we, we're an us. But what is the content of that? Well, we could say the anti-police 
element was a significant part. And I think, you know, if you didn't have the anti-police element, you wouldn't have got the riots. Not everybody had experience of stop and search. And I think Tim's data shows that, you know, most of his sample did. But you don't need to have that as an individual. I, mean, I think one of the things that we found was people talked about stop and search and other what they saw as police harassment as something against them collectively. Irrespective of whether the rioter was in Manchester or Nottingham or London is a feeling that there was a, a pre-existing sense of grievance about their relationship with police in these communities. And um, sometimes, although not always, that was expressed through experiences of stop and search, but it just kept coming back to the analysts. And I'm not saying that was the only thing they, they discovered, and there was, there was a whole host of different findings. As with all of these sort of social phenomena, it's incredibly complicated, and there's an interrelationship between all these different factors. But did this shared animosity towards the police, and in particular the Mark Duggan shooting, act as a motivating factor for the rioters in all the areas, including those in other cities? There are common threads that make their way for example, from Tottenham to Brixton, was that then kind of replicated on a wider scale, like when they moved to Croydon and then outside of London to other city centres? Mostly not. In fact, there were more people in Croydon and Clapham saying, no, I didn't get involved because of Mark Duggan. More people saying that than saying they did get involved because of Mark Duggan. So what is the other motivation? What is the other effect, if you like, and from looking at the data, it, it didn't seem as if they were mostly being directly influenced by Tottenham. They were more influenced by the totality of riots that had happened. Because this is day three, remember. The totality of riots that had happened by then, which told them that the police, the common enemy, was defeated, right? So in fact, it wasn't a kind of direct identification with Tottenham or Brixton, it was a more kind of indirect identification, having a, a, a recognition of a shared enemy, right, being vulnerable. And that allowed them to act upon that, to do all sorts of things, um, including a lot more looting. And that's why you got a lot more looting in the, in the later days than you did in the early days. The early days tended to be more anti-police, and as the riots developed, they became more looting-oriented once the police had been defeated and were seen to be vulnerable. I mean, I have had, just very recently, a woman very persuasively said to me, you know, they say, why did we break into these shops? She said, well, do you want to know how I'm treated when I go into one of these stores by the security guards? They follow me around like I'm suspicious. They act effectively like law enforcement. Now that was her argument. And, and when she argued it, I actually found it quite a compelling case. But I'm also aware that sometimes some commentators, I think, take this argument too far and argue that there is a degree of symbolism in some of this activity that may, may not always you know, ring true when you talk to the people who were actually involved in some of this. But I remember talking to Tim and the analysts about how this finding with respect to police really stood out to them. And you know, we took their lead. And, and that became, you know, what we would s sort of say was our top line. And it, it was proved to be a controversial one. Um, I don't think it was necessarily what, uh, you know, senior police officers wanted us to find. Um, I didn't get the sense from the Home Secretary at the time, who was Theresa May, was that it was the finding that, that she wanted us to find. But, it, you know, we were led by what we found in the research. So, what impact did the Reading the Rights report have on policymaking? 
Tim Newburn. The one dramatic impact it did have was on Theresa May, who came along to our conference in December 2011 and announced a big shift on stop and search. And, and you know, didn't claim for a moment that we were the only ones by any means who brought that about. But I think the, I think the public profile of the riots, re- reading the riots research with The Guardian, helped to stimulate, helped to focus attention on that. More widely? Ah, no, absolutely not. I mean, if one looks at, for example, the public policy response to the riots, what would you say it was? Well, I think the answer is there wasn't any. The the coalition government and the subsequent conservative government, um, the only thing they did of any substance that had any link with the riots was something called the Troubled Families Programme, which was a huge government initiative, Cameron Initiative, essentially, to target money and resources on what were seen to be the most troublesome families, those essentially who take up the greater part of public services. And the theory being that if you concentrated services around them, you'd have a disproportionate impact on various public problems. And that was it, pretty much. There was a low-level public inquiry, which did very little and everyone then forgot about. And unfortunately and sadly, I think, you know, the research, though, I think people continue to talk about it. So it's had a low level, ongoing, small effect on our sense and memory of these things. In terms of any more dramatic impact, I don't think we could claim it at all. Eight years on, where are we? I know that you did, you did a, as well as doing this research, you had an event um, at the beginning of the year which I presume had community members from Tottenham as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. So both from a kind of top-down uh, policy level and l- looking on the ground as well, where do you think we are now? Have we learned any lessons from the riots? Well, I think some of us have, but I don't think the government have. And I think um, many of the factors that were at play just before the riots of 2011 are still there now. I mean, um, stop and search that exists, they're talking about increasing it. We will give greater powers to the police to use stop and search to help tackle violent crime. It's been shown to be racist still. Deprivation isn't getting any better. Um, I'm not sure about attitudes to policing getting any better. And then of course, you know, what you would need on top of that for a right to occur is an event which crystallises those, uh, those concerns, such as the killing of a member of the public, where there is community support for that member of the public, that you know, we could get the same conditions again. I mean, an- another issue, of course, and, and uh, this was happening in 2011, is you know, people being on the streets. You know, it happened in the summer anyway, of course. Why do we get more riots in summers? Because people are on the streets. But they're especially going to be on the streets if they're young people and there are no youth facilities, right? And that was something that came up then. And I don't think they've opened more youth clubs since then. I still, I think it's the same situation, you know, those young people are still on the streets. So I'm afraid still, the same factors are still there. Politicians very quickly confuse or link or elide understanding with excusing. They think that if you endeavour to make sense of and understand what goes on in something like a riot and do more than just say, as David Cameron did, this is criminality pure and simple, then you're somehow excusing the behaviour of those who are involved. Whereas it seems to me it's perfectly possible to do both. I can both say 
that I think that the things that the people got up to, many people got up to on the streets of London and Manchester, Salford, Liverpool, etc., on those four days in August 2011, were appalling. But on the other hand, if you look at their lives, their anger, their frustration, what you see is, is poor, impoverished, disenfranchised communities with precious little hope actually getting worse. And by forgetting the rights, that amnesia allows those conditions to fester, to worsen, and so forth. Well, the question of why riots don't happen, I think, is a more interesting one, and arguably a more difficult one, uh, than why they do. There's no sense that, um, I think, you know, riots are going to happen tomorrow or this summer, but equally there's no sense they're not retrospectively i think we can kind of diagnose but the diagnosis doesn't allow us any prognostication it doesn't allow us to, to look forward at all we can't predict one positive um thing one can take from this is to think differently about riots i mean when when we did the, this community event in tottenham and again the event we did uh, in parliament uh, invited by diane abbott some people who took part were there and they said, yes, what is missing from the discourse is, in fact, even though it, was, it began through a tragedy, which is somebody being killed, and even though it involved a lot of pain for a lot of people, in fact, there were some exhilarating, empowering experiences for a lot of people who overturned power relations and for the first time felt in control of their lives. I mean, you know, Tim's research has documented this well, how prevalent this theme of joy and empowerment is in the experiences of participants to have, you know, created that, that power, power reversal. And that's never talked about because, again, this is kind of stigma about talking about anything positive to do with riots. Yet it's true because in everyday life we are, you know, often atomised, powerless individuals. But in a crowd we have the power to, to shape our world. The Reading the Rights Report was an innovative collaboration between journalism and academia and helped replace conjecture and belief with research and evidence. Here's Paul Lewis from The Guardian talking about what he learned from the project. But it also changed the way that I do my job. You know, my technique for interviewing has never been the same since the Reading the Riots project. The process of conducting non-leading interviews where you, you know, try to get an, an interviewee to talk to you in an open and transparent way as possible, it's just an incredibly effective journalistic tool. At its essence, the objective of journalism is not that distinct from academia. I mean, maybe it has more distorting influences. <laughs> you know, academics don't have advertisers. Um, there's an element of journalism which is about entertainment, beautiful writing, um, engaging stories. But at its essence, we're trying to find out about the world. There is a point where social research and journalism can meet one another and for a few months in 2011 we did that and uh, I'm really pleased we did. People like to say like, uh, have you heard this phrase, journalism is the first draft of history? And you know, I feel like we went beyond that. It was a second or third draft. <laughs> Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was produced by James Routie. Want to explore the issue of writing in more depth? The episode was based in part on the following research. Reading the Riots, 
by Paul Lewis, Tim Newburn, Matthew Taylor, Katriana McGlivery, Aster Greenhill, Harold Freeman, and Rob Proctor. Rereading the Riots, ESRC Beyond Contagion's Interim Report by John Drury, Roger Ball, Fergus Neville, Stephen Riker, and Clifford Scott. Join us next time when we ask, is the 21st century the Chinese century? For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe, please visit lsc.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSE IQ in your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover.